0: You're listening to an Axe Church sermon. If you haven't heard of Axe Church before, we are a church in Camas, Washington. You can check us out at axcamas.org. You can see what we're about and what we're up to. We're glad you're listening today and hope you enjoy this sermon. So we're in the book of Acts. I've been in the book of Acts for a while. But we're really, we're closing in on it. We're coming in towards the end. We're landing the plane here eventually. I make no promises, but hopefully in the next uh, several weeks, we're going to get there. And uh, this book, is, uh, the book of Acts, takes us through the works of the Holy Spirit in the early church, in the history of the early church. Basically, after the resurrection of Jesus until, well, I'm not going to tell you until because we're not to the end yet, but we will be there soon. But uh, last week, we talked about Paul before the Sanhedrin, this group, of the leaders, the council, uh, the leaders of the Jewish people, the religious leaders. He was before them, um, and they're very upset with him. Because Paul preaches about Jesus, and they don't like that. Okay? That kind of threatens their uh, assumptions, challenges their assumptions, challenges their traditions, their institutions, and the way that they've come to think about what it means to be Jewish and to serve God and all this stuff. So they're upset. And Paul's been arrested by the Romans because when he was in the temple, uh, some of the Jews got really upset with him. They grabbed him. They dragged him outside the temple. They start beating him. Okay, and so the Romans come, and the and the commander of the garrison uh, gets Paul and arrests him, uh, pulls him so that they don't kill him, basically, and brings him back and arrests him, and, and and Paul's under arrest, but he doesn't. The Roman commander of the garrison does not know why they're mad at Paul, and so that's why he brings him in front of the Sanhedrin, and, and uh, so that he could hear kind of the charges that they had against him. Okay, and so uh, when Paul speaks before the Sanhedrin. He mentions that he's a Pharisee and that he has hope in the resurrection of the dead. And when he says this, it basically causes a big tumult uh, between the different kind of parties within the the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they start fighting with each other. and, And they fight so much that the commander of the garrison has to send soldiers in to pull Paul out. Of between, from between them because they're going to tear him to pieces because they're basically fighting over him and what he said. He's basically caused this issue. And so they bring Paul back into the barracks, and that's where we left him last time, okay? Uh, as we walk through today's scripture, we're going to finish out, we're going to try to finish out, Lord willing, chapter 23 today. As we walk through the scripture today, I want you to be thinking about a few things. First, when Jesus tells us he's going to do something, he's going to do it. We can believe that. We can have 100% confidence in the promises of God. But what is our part in that when Jesus tells us he's going to do something? Do we just sit back and wait for it to happen? Or do we continue to wisely do our part to pursue those promises that God's given us? I just want you to think about that as we walk through. The other thing I want you to think about is we're going to run into some some fellas here uh, in this passage that are so angry That they want to murder paul they want to kill him because he's threatening their traditions their institutions and and essentially their pride okay so we're going to see these guys And, and and i want us to think about how do we think about those who threaten our traditions and institutions and pride do we have the mind of christ toward all people or do we see some people as other or as those people and if so you know uh, what ought we to be doing? So I want you to think through those things as we read through this passage, and we'll kind of come back to them in a little while. So we're in chapter 23. If you have your Bible, turned there. We're at verse 11, and it says this. But the following night... So remember, he's been taken back in the barracks, right? There, he was in front of the Sanhedrin. He's been taken back in the barracks. Says, but the following night, the Lord stood by him. The Lord stood by Paul and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Now, the Lord stood by him. What an amazing picture this is because Paul's having a rough time, to be fair, okay? Uh, It's not his first rough time, but it's a rough time Okay? He got a beat down. He's under arrest. First, the, the Jews basically are trying to beat him to death. Then he's under arrest by the Romans. Uh, he hasn't been able to do much in the way of uh, preaching the gospel and convincing anybody while he's been in Jerusalem that we've seen. He doesn't know what's going to happen next. I would say Paul's pretty stressed out. That's what I would say. Uh, and in this moment where Paul is probably not feeling very good at all okay he's probably feeling very very down very very stressed doesn't know what's going to happen next in this moment the lord stood beside him stood beside him do you ever feel alone broken or afraid if you're living in this world the answer is yes you do sometimes feel that way uh, in those moments what would it do for you to know that the lord was standing beside you that the lord stood beside you. I think that for me, in those moments when I, when I recognize that the Lord's presence is there, that his presence is so amazing and powerful that it's beyond what I could explain with words, the comfort, the peace that comes in knowing that the Lord is there in our most difficult times, that, the day that we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that he's with us, that his rod, his staff, they comfort us. To know that is incredibly comforting. And what does the Lord tell Paul? Here in this, in this passage, he says, be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. Now, in Greek, uh, this could be kind of be of good courage, be of good cheer. It's a comforting thing. It's essentially a command to be, to be brave, to be courageous, to, be, to feel good. That's what, that's what Jesus is doing. Um, it's a command to be of good courage, to be of good cheer. Now, in the New Testament, this is used several times, and in every instance except one, it's spoken by Jesus, including here. The, the, other, the other instance was a blind man who Jesus called, and the people said to the blind man, be of good cheer, he's called for you. So in every case, this phrase, this Greek phrase, is attributed to Jesus himself or about Jesus. And here's the thing, because he's the only one, who could ever say it? He's the only one who could ever say it. We've all probably been in those situations where, we have, where we're anxious, we're depressed, we're lonely, we're whatever, we're having a hard time. And some well-meaning person, or maybe not so well-meaning, comes up to us and says something like, buck up, get tough, feel better, right? And, and you're kind of like, oh, is that all, is that all it was? If I would have known that, right? And you should be a you know, motivational speaker. If I had just known all I had to do was feel better and I wouldn't feel so bad, it's kind of a dumb thing to say, right? Because if we could just buck up or feel better, we would. The reason we feel like that is because we can't just get tough or buck up or feel better. There are some things that are difficult in life, okay? Um, and it's so it's very rarely effective when somebody says something like that to us. But there is a person who can say that to us because here's the deal: people can't tell us everything's going to be okay, you should just be happy, you should just feel better. And one of the reasons they can't is because we know that they don't know that everything's going to be okay because they're just people, right? But it's so different when the Lord stands beside us and says to be of good cheer because he is the solution to our problems. When Jesus says take courage, be of good cheer, it's because he's going to provide us the courage. He's going to work it out for good for the kingdom of God He's in control. So when he says, be of good cheer, he commands us to be of good cheer. You can actually be of good cheer because you know that he's in control. He knows the end from the beginning, and he's telling us that being of good cheer, being of good courage, bucking up, feeling better, is the proper response to the fact that he's standing beside us. And it is, right? So when I was uh, a little bit younger, a younger father, Uh, My son, Ethan, the one who plays the drums over here, was smaller. He's now, we found out yesterday, he's as tall as me, and so we'll be having our battle for dominance soon. (coughs) So be ready. Um, We'll try to video it or something. Uh, No, so he was much smaller than we, we had a pool, and I wanted Ethan to dive in the pool, but he's very little, and he didn't want to dive in the pool. Okay? He didn't, I mean, sometimes kids don't want to dive headfirst in the water. You know, he had learned to swim probably weeks before that, and he was, you know, I don't even know if it had been weeks before that, but I'm kind of like, let's do it. Come on, buck up. Get tough. You can do it. Just push through the fear. Do it. And he's just kind of like, mm-hmm. so eventually, because I'm a great, great father, I pick him up and I throw him into the pool headfirst, okay? Okay. Um, I think the statute of limitations has passed on whatever, wasn't even in this state. So uh, he didn't like that, okay? Uh, he didn't like that. And all my might get tough, and, and he did eventually learn how to dive, and he was fine. But my instinct that, well, just make him do it, just make him face it, my instinct wasn't great. And it actually was a moment, unfortunately, where, you know, it's one of those first times where as a kid you start to go, can I really trust my parents? We all come to that point at some time at some point and realize we can't put our faith in our parents or anyone else, right? We can't put our faith in any people because no people have the power to truly make everything okay. There's only one who can, right? And that's Jesus. And so when he says, be of good cheer, it's not like when I say, buck up, you're going to be fine. Ethan's thinking, you think I'm going to be fine, but what if I drown?
1: What if I hit my head
0: on the bottom? What if I whatever? And he's right, what if? Because I don't have have enough control to make sure everything goes well. But when Jesus says jump, you can be certain that you're going to be okay. That he's going to take care of it. And here's the thing. It's not just for Paul in this moment where Jesus says be of good cheer. We actually have Christ saying be of good cheer to every one of us. If you have your Bible, you can turn to John 16, verse 33. It says, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That's to you and me. That's to all of his disciples, right? You're going to have trouble. Do you understand what's going on here? You're going to have trouble, tribulation, difficulties. All of those things are going to happen. All those things are going to happen. But Jesus has overcome the world. And because of that, he's commanding us to be of good cheer. To be of good cheer. I, can't, I can only imagine the comfort that this statement of Jesus has brought Christ's followers over many, many centuries, and and to this day, all over the world, when they're going through difficulties, and they look to this statement, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. It reminds me of Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. We can be of good cheer, we can be of good courage, because God's got this. God's got this, okay? Not that you won't suffer suffer trouble in the world, okay? But that all things will work together for good because Jesus has overcome the world. And so Jesus tells Paul that Paul will testify of Jesus in Rome. Now Paul can rest in that and have courage in that and be of good cheer. And that's a good thing because the next thing that happens here in the passage is pretty rough for Paul. So let's look at verses 12 uh, through 16. It says, And when it was day... Some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him, but we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, all right, you can see why it's good that the Lord had come and stood by Paul and told him to be of good cheer and gave him this promise about making it to Rome because when you find out that 40 plus dudes want to off you, it's kind of a bummer, Right? I mean, it's kind of a bummer to find out that all these guys have have determined to kill you. They're not going to eat or drink until they've killed you. They're they're pretty serious about it. But now, of course, Paul knows that that's not going to happen because the Lord has promised him he would get to Rome. Now, I'm going to just say out of the gate, this is a group that I could not join. Okay, because when they said, we're not going to eat or drink until we do something, I'd be like, I'm sorry, eat or drink. Now, how about we don't exercise until... We do whatever this thing is. That's about as much as I'm willing to promise. I'm not going to do the eater, drink thing. right? How about we won't work out or exercise until we've done away with Paul. That's one I could probably join. But these guys are zealous, right? They want Paul dead. They want Paul dead. They apparently are willing to attack whatever Romans would have been guarding him to bring him to the Sanhedrin uh, in order to get at him, which is a very serious thing, okay? Uh, this would put their own lives in very, very serious danger, and it was that serious to them. What could these men be so angry about with Paul that they would even then go get the chief priests and the, and the council involved? I mean, do you understand the political issue here by bringing these chief priests and, this, and the council into this thing? If they had gone and brought Paul and these guys would have come down and killed Paul, maybe hurt, hurt or killed some of those soldiers, not only would the 40-plus guys be in big big trouble and probably be executed but the entire the leadership of the Jews would have been in- implied that they were involved in this conspiracy it would have i don't know what it would have done it could have undone all of Jerusalem at the time it was that big of a deal they were that upset about wanting to kill paul the risk would have been enormous enormous and why so they can kill this christian preacher this 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 guy this dude what causes that kind of anger? We'll, we'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. Let's look at verses uh, 17 through 22. It says, Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside, and asked privately, What is it you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander yet let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. So, so one thing I can see is that Paul's obviously being treated somewhat well. He can take in visitors. Right, and even tell his visitors to go talk to the commander, and all that worked out. So he's been treated somewhat well. You remember last time he told them he was a Roman citizen, and they sort of backed off. So apparently he's doing okay in there. Um, and his nephew is here in Jerusalem. He hears about this plot. This is His nephew hearing about this plot, this young man hearing about this plot, is just another one of these examples. We've talked about this before. There are people who say that there's a conspiracy, that basically all of, all of the Scripture, all of the Bible, all the people, all the hundreds of people who said that they saw Jesus alive after he was dead, that it's a big conspiracy to create this religion. Now, first of all, why they would create a conspiracy that most of them or many of them had to be martyred for, I'm not really sure. But putting that aside, you had 40-plus guys, right? And then they go talk to the Sanhedrin, which could have been up to 70 or more people that they talked to. And they, they had a conspiracy that they certainly wanted to keep quiet, and it took a day for some, for some young man in Jerusalem to have heard about it. You can't keep conspiracies quiet, Okay. You can't keep them quiet. And so, those who suggest that the disciples and all these people who were claiming that Jesus was was alive after he was dead, it's just absurd the idea that that kind of a conspiracy could be kept. You can see how well this one happened. It didn't make it a day. Didn't make it a day. So, um, let's look at the next couple verses. The the commander's told this young man not to tell anybody about it, and then he says this, and he called for two centurions, saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. So the commander gets 470 soldiers. 470 soldiers, and at about 9 o'clock at night, he sends them and Paul to Caesarea. So he's taking this, obviously, very, very seriously. He's not messing around. Paul had caused such a ruckus here. And remember this, by the way. Paul hadn't really done anything in Jerusalem to cause a ruckus. It's not like he had been preaching the synagogues and causing all kinds. All he had done is gone into the temple. This was actually some of the other towns you can see how it built up. But here, he hadn't really done anything. But he had caused such a ruckus, but not in Jerusalem, all over the world. Right. That's why they're so upset. Because all over the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ has been preached with such power that now these people are so angry that they want to kill Paul. That this Roman uh, commander gets ten to one soldiers to the Jews who admit to the untrained Jews who had made this pact. He gets four hundred and seventy soldiers to go against forty something of them, and then takes them at night so they won't know about it. The other way. The other way. They're ready for trouble. And he takes him to Caesarea. So let's read about that. It says he wrote a letter. In the to, he wrote a letter in the following manner: Claudius Lysias. Now, Claudius Lysias—that's this guy, the Roman commander. This is the first time we actually see his name. I told you last time, or we we read last time about how he had bought his citizenship in Rome, probably bought it while Claudius was Caesar. Well, Claudius was the ruler, the emperor, and so therefore would have taken his name Claudius, which is the normal thing that people would have done at that time. So Claudius Lysias is the name of this uh, Roman commander. And he says, to the most excellent governor, Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. You may remember the story last time. He didn't learn that he was a Roman and go rescue him, right? He grabbed him, arrested him, was about to flog him. He leaves that out before he even found out that he was wrong. But anyway, he makes it look nice for him. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. Now, this is interesting because the way that Luke writes this here, he's saying that this is the actual text of the letter. Acts is about facts, right? This is the actual letter that Claudius Lysias sent, the, or at least the text of the actual letter that Claudius Lysias sent to Felix. So he was able to get a hold of it somehow. Why, why include it? They're just telling the same story again. I think Luke's in, Luke includes it once again to show that this is a real history Right? A real history that you can depend on. Anyway, this is the real letter. It says, Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and return to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's Praetorium. So they take him to Felix. He's the governor. He's in Caesarea. Jerusalem is actually not the center of government for the Romans in Judea. Caesarea is. That's why Paul is brought there. Felix, Paul comes in. Felix asks him where he's from, and he's asking that so he can check that Paul's actually within his jurisdiction. He doesn't want to mess around with him if he's not. Paul's from Cilicia. Felix realizes he's in his jurisdiction, and he puts him aside to be dealt with later, to be dealt with later. So that's the end of, of this chapter. Uh, and we're gonna, we're, that's as far as we're going to go today in the Scripture, but I want to I wanna unpack some of this, okay? I want to unpack some of this. A couple things that I want to walk through. First, the Lord promises Paul that he'll go to Rome, but the first thing to remember is he doesn't tell Paul how long it will be. It'll be a couple of years, by the way. Not till we get there, though. We'll, we'll do it in a few weeks, but it'll be a couple years before he gets there. And he'll still be under arrest when he gets there. But he didn't tell Paul that stuff. He left that stuff out. He just told Paul that this thing was going to happen. But he didn't tell him everything about it. When the Lord gives us promises, it's going to be his way, not our way, right? The Lord didn't say that our lives were all going to be lollipops and bubblegum. Nevertheless, we know we can depend on his promises. We know we can depend on his promises. Um, And as we'll see, Lord willing, as we get through the rest of this book, the Lord does get Paul there through a number of different issues that it takes for him to get there. Um, So when Paul hears, though, that there's a group of more than 40 men who want to kill him, why warn the commander of the garrison at all if he knows that he's going to make it to Rome? He knows he's not going to die there. He knows. Jesus, you know, the Lord has been there, stood by him and told him, you're going to make it to Rome. So he knows that whatever these guys want to do, he's not going to die. So why even worry about it? Why even take the time to warn the commander or anything else? Because he doesn't have to worry about it. He's, he's walking around knowing that God is going to get him to Rome, that that's going to happen. So why does he do that? There are a couple possible reasons why. Let me, let me walk through. First, Paul loved people, okay, including the Romans and the Jewish leaders and all these 40-something men. He loved all of them, okay? Even though some of them had made themselves Paul's enemies, Paul was a Christ follower, and so he loved his enemies, Because that's what Jesus has told us to do, right? To love our enemies. I know that's one of the harder parts of Scripture. That's one that people really, really struggle against. Love your enemies. That's not easy to do. It's not easy to do, but it is a command, and one that Paul certainly would have been following. Paul doesn't want these guys to try to kill him, not because he thinks they can kill him, because he knows he's going to Rome. Okay? But he doesn't want them to kill him because they themselves might get killed if they try that, right? Or... Or they might kill some of the Roman soldiers. It might lead back to the council and the Sanhedrin, and it might undo all of Jerusalem, which he doesn't want to happen because he loves these people. He loves these people, right? He doesn't want the Jewish leaders to get caught up in this and possibly be executed. What does Paul always want for everybody that we've seen consistently? He wants them to know Jesus, he wants them to be saved. That's what he wants. He's not holding a grudge, he's not angry. He wants this thing to stop because he doesn't want bad things to happen to these people who he actually cares about and loves. But here's here's the other thing. When God tells you something, you know what's going to happen, but that doesn't mean that you don't have to use wisdom and plan well as you're walking through those things that God has for you. So just because Paul knows that the Lord is going to make sure that he makes it to Rome doesn't mean that Paul shouldn't do all the things on Paul's side to wisely get there. Like foiling a conspiracy of people to murder him, right? We know, for instance, that God grows the church, right? That over time, that it's the Lord who will bring people into this body to come to know him and to grow in him. We know that that's his work. So does that mean that myself and, and the other, and, and all of you and all of us as we're, as we're working through this, that we just sit around and pick our nose and wait for the church to grow? No, Right? I'm not saying I don't pick my nose, but I don't do it waiting for the church to grow. That's, I, I don't, right? Not that you'll ever see. We don't do that, right? We invite people. We advertise. We do whatever. Not, not because we think that it's our power that makes the thing happen. We believe that it's the promise of God that he will continue to grow his church and make it strong. But we have a duty, our own thing that we're supposed to do, not because it's in our power that it happens, but because we've got to be faithful to wisely do our part. We, we know that, okay? No one is here today, no one is listening online or watching a video of this, of this message that God did not determine to be in that spot at that time because he wants you to hear it or he wants you to be here, okay? But you might be here because someone invited you, right? God was going to have you here one way or the other, yet we've, we're supposed to do our part. We're supposed to do our part. We know that God will take care of us. We know that that's a promise of his, but that doesn't mean that we go take all our money and throw it in the toilet, because God's going to take care of us anyway, right? No, we wisely use our money. We wisely do our part, even though we know that it's God who's in power and God who's going to make sure that we're taken care of. We know that all things will work together for good. We just read that. That doesn't mean that we don't care what we do and we're negligent, reckless about our actions because, hey, in the end, God's going to work it all out. No, we wisely do our part. Okay? Here's another one. God will forgive your sins. God will forgive your sins. That's a promise. 1 John 1, 9 says this. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That doesn't mean that we don't care what we do or how we act. That doesn't mean that we presume upon the grace of God because we know we'll be forgiven. That's not love. That's not treating Jesus as Lord of our lives. We can't go on sinning or, oh, well, we'll do this one. God will forgive me later. It's okay. He's going to forgive me for anything. I can do whatever I want. Grace, grace, grace. Okay? Because grace is guaranteed. Okay? 1 John 1 is absolutely true. God will forgive you. It's guaranteed. But grace was not free. It might be free to you. It might be a free gift to you, but it wasn't free to God. We must not trample on the work that Jesus did on the cross by treating grace like it was cheap. He had to die to save us from our sins. His promise of forgiveness is not a license to sin. When God promises, God performs. There's no doubt about that. Okay? But we also wisely do our part. Wisely do our part to walk in the provision of his promises. This is what Paul is doing here. He could have sat back and done nothing and known that these guys weren't going to be able to kill him. So let's see what happens. But he didn't. He didn't. He didn't say, I'm going to be okay. God promised me I'm going to be in Rome. No. He cared about others. He wisely did his part to keep this conspiracy from happening because he wisely walked in the promises of God. He didn't just sit back and wait for them to happen. We need to be careful not to do that either. I wonder how long, by the way, these guys waited before they ate and drank again. Or if they just starved to death. I don't know. I'm assuming that they probably ate and drank in when they realized they're not getting to Paul. And by the way, they don't get to him. They never, these particular guys never get to Paul. They just are hungry. So um, let's talk a little bit more about these guys, these 40, more than 40 men that had conspired to murder Paul. First of all, how did they justify what they were doing? Paul was preaching Jesus and, and scandalizing the traditions and institutions that they had in their mind about what life should look like, and they were zealous, zealous for their traditions, and assumedly they convinced themselves that what God wanted was for Paul to be dead, right? That they were acting for God. But how, how did they convince themselves that they were acting for God? I mean, remember, these men were conspiring and getting the council to lie and going to commit murder, Right? someone who had not been convicted of anything. They were going to murder him. They were going to lie in wait and murder Paul and get the leaders of their people to lie and do all this stuff. How did they convince themselves that that's what God wanted? These guys are so zealous for the law, right? That's their thing. They're so zealous for the law, and yet in order to be zealous for the law, they were going to completely break some of the most serious rules in the law so that they could be zealous for the law. Do you see how backwards that gets? And here's the thing that That happens to a lot of people a lot of times. It's called the ends justifying the means. These guys figured that the ends justify the means. They figured, hey, God wants Paul dead. Of course he does because Paul's not like us. He's not not making us feel good about our own pride and our own traditions and whatever. So God probably wants him dead. So God would be okay with lying and conspiring and murdering and lying in wait and all that kind of stuff. um, As long as it meant that Paul was dead at the end of it. They convince themselves of this. Now, how often do we do this? How often do we convince ourselves that God would pr- approve of our ends, and therefore we use sinful means to get to these ends that we think God would want us to get to? How many people have cheated on a test or kept their money in their pocket instead of helping out that neighbor or that person in need or tithing or whatever it was? Uh, because, oh, I cheated on the test because I know God wants me to graduate from high school, or pass this class, or graduate from college, or you know, I kept the money because I know God wants my family to go on a vacation, or here's, here's one that's really, really rough. God would want me to be happy, and that's kind of the catch-all. Any sin, any horrible thing you want to do, you're going to go cheat on your spouse, you're going to go do whatever because I'm unhappy, and God would want me to be happy And so, you know, which is insane because there's nothing in the Bible that says that any sin is okay as long as the end result is that the person is happy. That's not there. That's nonsense. And yet I hear this type of thing. This type of thing happens. Well, yeah, it may be against the Bible. It may be wrong. It may be evil. It may be whatever. But I know that God wouldn't want me to be in this situation or not have this thing or whatever it is because I know that God wants me to be happy. Not that way he doesn't not that way he doesn't. The ends do not justify the means. There's a whole lot to think about there, okay? But, we, but, but here's the point. We have to do what's right. We have to do what's right and trust God to take care of the rest. That's certainly not what these guys were doing. These guys were saying, no, God wants Paul dead, so we'll go violate all the laws of God to make it happen because God apparently isn't capable of taking care of it himself. Now, if you want to work through more of this ends means, uh, moral ethical uh, issues, you can come to contemplate sometime, and we'll we work through that type of stuff a lot. So, here's another thing about these guys who are against Paul: uh, they had way more in common with him than they were thinking or giving credit to. Listen to what Paul says about himself in the third chapter of Philippians. He says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks they may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul is a Jew's Jew, a Hebrew's Hebrew. He's one of them. He's one of them. He's more like these men than they understood. He was Jewish, he was a Pharisee, he understood the Hebrew Scriptures, he was zealous about the Hebrew law, but somehow he had become other to them. The only real difference is Paul's proclamation of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and that Paul believed that God, through Jesus Christ, wanted to save both Jews and Gentiles. That was the only real difference, and these guys, because of their their zeal for their traditions and their institutions and this national pride... This, this affected them so much that Paul, although almost just like them in every way, had become, somehow become one of those people, somebody else. So much so that they were willing to kill him. That's how far it got. This guy who came from the same place, would have been in the same neighborhoods, going to the same synagogues, all of these things, had become so other to them that he was those people, and so much so that eventually they were so hard towards him in their heart that they were willing to kill him because he threatened what they thought was the way things should be, their traditions, their institutions, not stuff that was of God, obviously, or they wouldn't be lying and murdering, but their own traditions, their own institutions. Now, now, here's what I would ask you, us, us to think about. Who are those people in our lives? Who are those people? Because those people, by the way, are the people that you separate yourself from in some way, Okay? In some way, you separate yourself from them. You may not admit that you look down on them, but if you're honest, maybe we do, right? Maybe we do. And are, are, they, are, the people, are they people that don't look like you or that don't act like you? Or maybe people who disagree with your politics or people from other countries that don't have the same kind of traditions as you? Oh. When you talk and think about people who are, from, who are in these categories, different than you in some way, do you have the mind of Christ towards them? Do you think about them and treat them well? Do you think about this question, are they my neighbor? Are they my neighbor? Because if they're my neighbor, I'm to love them as myself. You guys probably remember the story of the Good Samaritan. and We're going to read out of Luke here, chapter 10. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him. Of course, it's got to be a lawyer, right? Um, These guys are rough. Even back then, it's that old. Um, Stood up and tested him, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Now, you've got to understand something about this story. The Samaritans were those people. I mean, big time. The Jews could not stand the Samaritans. They could not stand. They despised the Samaritans. The only people that despised more than the Samaritans were Gentiles. Okay? They despised Samaritans. So Jesus doesn't pick this accidentally. This lawyer wanted to think that loving his neighbor as himself meant his actual neighbor. And that was probably narrowly defined to be the person who acts, looks, thinks just like him. That's his neighbor. He can love that person as himself. Probably not but at least he can handle the idea of loving that person himself. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm going to flip this upside down in you. These people that you despise, these people that you've made those people, these people that you've made other, that's the person you're supposed to love as yourself. That's who I'm talking about when I say love your neighbor as yourself. Now, do we believe that we couldn't go just like these other men did to Paul and get so lost in our own pride in our own love for our own institutions and traditions, that we could create groups of those people and that somewhere down the end of that road, we could be just like these guys. I don't know. I don't know. I I see the possibility. I don't think that these guys started this totally evil, horrible people, I think they got lost more and more and more in the other people, and the those people type of world. I see our culture trying to create those kinds of divisions and tribal divisions between people. And, I, and we've seen in history how bad things can get when that happens. And people who thought that they were Christians who were following the Lord have become so twisted that they were no better than these guys who wanted to kill Paul. And so let me ask you a couple questions. Who do you have more in common with? Think about this. Your unbeliever next-door neighbor who lives next door to you here in the USA or the believer in Iraq or Pakistan? Who do you have more in common with? Your unbeliever biological sister or your sister in Christ who was brought to the United States as a child as an undocumented immigrant? Who do you have more in common with? Your unbeliever favorite singer or actor or your brother and sister in Christ in China who has to secretly gather with other believers so they don't get arrested when they worship God? Your unbeliever hunting buddy or your believer brother or sister in Christ who became convinced in their own conscience that they should vote for a different political candidate than you? That so easily becomes those people Now listen, I'm not mentioning these people to say that unbelievers are other. That's not my point at all. My point is that even believers, even people who are believers who you should be the very closest to, who you should care the most about, can even fall into the category of other of those people if you're not careful. If they happen to come from a certain country or they happen to rub against a certain political ideology or whatever that we hold, even believers who we're primarily responsible to can become those people. The truth is that for a believer, for a Christ follower, there's no such thing as those people. Those people don't exist. Those people don't exist. The minute you start down that road, you've gotten off base. The leaders of the Jews, you remember from a couple of weeks ago, had a hissy fit. As soon as Paul mentioned the Gentiles, They freaked out because to them, of course, the Gentiles were those people. To them, almost everybody had become those people except for themselves. They couldn't even get along with each other, as you remember from last week. And this had gotten so bad that they were willing to conspire and lie and murder Paul. The way to avoid becoming like these men is to make sure that we are not labeling and rejecting people because they happen to be different than us or they come from a different tribe or they're not exactly like us or it's politically expedient to label people a certain way. We've got to be careful. And if you don't see the connection between having those people, whatever they are, and you just have to be honest with yourself about who that is. If you don't see the connection between having that happen in your mind and, and eventually down that road somewhere becoming just like these 40-plus men, then you're missing something because it didn't happen like that. It happened over time, it happened over time. Is your heart breaking for the persecuted church around the world? Is your heart breaking for the oppressed, the poor, the heartbroken here in our city? Or are they those people who we don't worry about? You know, I'm going to mention Rich and Ollie, uh, who many of you know, the Youngs. Uh, every week, they put on their prayer request card, prayer requests for so many people. They have all these people. First of all, they're super popular because they're awesome, and so they have lots of friends. But they're also super popular because they care enough about their friends to literally, we're, we're, we in staff and, and the people who are praying, we're praying for all these people, who, many of whom I've never met, because Rich and Ollie think about and pray about these people. What, what do our prayer lists Look like, because the easiest way to have those people is to think so much about me and so little about everybody else that that I'm I'm locked in, I'm locked into self. But if we're out, what does our what do our prayer list look like? What what are we are we pouring ourselves out day, night, midday like David was to the Lord? We passionate about seeing unbelievers saved and believers growing in Christ? Are we passionate about meeting the needs of people who need us? Or have we created sort of the our tribe and their tribe mentality? And it's relatively innocent at first. But in the end, it looks like what we read today. Do we care about these people? And, and, And whatever answer you gave in your mind when I said you care about these people. Let me ask you, if other people who were outside were looking at your life, would they agree with whatever answer you gave to that question? If you said, yes, I definitely care a lot about unbelievers, about the poor, about the lost, would other people who knew you and were looking at your life say, yes, I agree with that? They do care about that. That's what their life looks like. Just something to think about. We're Christ followers. There's no those people. We have to be the ones showing compassion and care for the poor, for the stranger, for the outcast, for those who other people are calling those people. Those are the people that we're supposed to be loving. We have to constantly check ourselves because anything else will lead to the kind of pride that led these 40 plus men to become murderers in their hearts. So zealous that they were willing to kill Paul just because he wanted to share the good news of Jesus with those people. Now, I'm not saying that every single person, every single Christ follower needs to go and sell everything they have and go help the, the persecuted church in China, or even the person who's, who's suffering here. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's the call for everybody, but listen, can we pray five minutes longer a day? Can we give five dollars more Can we take five extra minutes and analyze and assess our own prejudices and our pride when we come to decisions on where we stand on political issues? Can we think five minutes longer before posting on Facebook? Ask Jesus to rock you, to change you, and to make you see the world as he does. For all of its glory in him, and for all of its need that he will meet, be asking him to meet that need through you there are no others there are no those people there are only men women and children made in the image and likeness of god who need a savior that's the only people that exist so if there's anything in your heart against any person whether it's an individual whether it's a group whatever it is if you're saying well those people do what those people do whatever those those words are there you need to get rid of them now because the only people that exist are people made in the image and likeness of God who need a Savior. Period. Love your enemies. Pray for your neighbors. Serve your brothers and sisters. I'm not saying to move one inch from the clear commands of Scripture on morality, and the commands that, uh, that Christ has given us and following Him and all those kinds of things. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying to do any of that. There are people who do things that are wrong. And it's okay to say these particular people have done things that are wrong, right? That's okay. But when you make them those people, you do something different, and, and everyone knows what it's like. Everybody needs Jesus. and All I'm asking is that we ask Jesus to help us see our prejudices and to learn to love all who he loves so that we don't become like these other men. Let's pray. Well, thanks for listening to our sermon. Again, this has been a sermon from Axe Church in Camas, Washington. We hope you enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. If you did, you can subscribe to our channel as well as liking and commenting. We love to hear how these sermons are impacting you. You can also take a look at our podcast series that we have out. And we'll catch you again next week.